0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I have in your uh, outlines uh, a quote that I want to begin with, and it's this from Joel Olstein. Two quotes from him. He says this, you know, most people are beaten down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. I want them to come to Lakewood or our meetings to be lifted up and to say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. Then another quote by Joel Osteen. People are used to, that is in churches, condemning people to make them feel bad so that they'll repent. So they'll know that they're sinners. But I think there's a different approach. Now, Joel is obviously an incredible motivational speaker. You have to you have to recognize that. He's very good that way. But he's one of many people who, unfortunately, don't like to talk about sin. Do not like to talk about repentance. Do not like to talk about weeping over your sin and crying over your sin and seeking God for repentance on that sin. As he says, I like to take a different approach. And I began wondering, well, really, is there another approach besides helping people see their sin, identify their sin, and run to Jesus and ask for forgiveness of their sin? I mean, is there a different approach? I, I don't think there is. Terry doesn't think there is either. And I thought, you know, I think he's sort of, Joel may be out of step with some big people in the Bible. Like, to start with, John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist says it this way. He would go around saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Apparently repentance is important to him. He also said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't just repent in your head, but repent in the way you live your life. Change. Jesus said it this way. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Repentance seems like a big deal for Jesus. And then Peter says it this way when he presents the gospel and the role of repentance in the gospel. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, according to John the Baptist, Jesus, and Peter, repentance is sort of an important thing. It's a very big deal. This morning, we're going to be returning to our studies in 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so far, we've seen that up to this point, the nation of Israel is in deep trouble they're constantly being harassed. They're constantly being beat up by this group called the Philistines. Today, we're going to find out that they're attacked again by the Philistines. But for them, when they were attacked this time, repentance made all the difference. If you want one big idea out of this morning, the one soundbite I want you to walk away with, it's this, repentance makes all the difference. Let's go ahead and and begin. I want to begin by giving you some background, some backstory. A few weeks ago, when we began in this study, I told you that the whole book of 1 Samuel is about leadership. But in the last few weeks, we've been studying the ark. The ark was brought into battle. (laughs) They were defeated in battle. The ark was brought over to the Philistines. Then it's come back. And you, you think, well, wait a minute. Where is the whole issue of leadership? It seems like we forgot about the topic of leadership during the chapters four through six, which are all about the ark. Well, you may think we had forgotten about the topic of leadership. We actually haven't forgotten about that. Let me explain it to you this way. 1 Samuel chapter four teaches us that God has no problem dealing with corrupt leaders that are inside a nation. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, God takes them all out in one day no problem taking care of that. First Samuel chapter 5 and 6 teaches us that God has no problem dealing with evil, corrupt leaders who are in a different nation. Because isn't that what happens when the ark ends up in the Philistines? Philistines think they have this great prize of war. We've stolen the ark. We have the ark. Didn't take long. <laughs> In seven months, they were begging to give back the ark because God was heavy upon them. God laid his hand upon them. So God has no problem taking care of wicked leaders who are inside of a nation. God has no problem taking care of wicked leaders who are from a different nation. He could take care of both of those problems rather easily. So you see how this is all about leadership? But here's the problem. God's taking care of the wicked leaders inside the nation and the wicked leaders from another nation, but yet God's people are still suffering. Things are not going well. You may wonder, what is going wrong? Why are things falling apart? And here's the issue the problems that they are suffering are not from leaders inside or outside their nation, the problems that they are suffering is because of themselves they are in a broken relationship with God. And until they repent and get that relationship with God right, these problems will continue and God's favor will not return. Last week, we saw that when the ark came back, uh, 70 men of Beth Shemesh, they got a little bit uh, sort of overzealous for the return of the ark. And from what it seems like what they did is they actually looked inside of the ark, it did not go well for them. Uh, they were instantly struck dead. And then they said, you know, we don't like this ark at all. Let's get rid of this thing. And they did the same thing the Philistines did, which say, who is a neighbor we can give this thing to? So we can give them the problem. And they decided to give it to the men of Kiriath-Jerim. And this is the last thing we looked at last week. First Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So for 20 years, the ark remained at the house of Abinadab, that house on the hill. It stayed there. And here is where things are about to get interesting. Last week when I was preaching through this text, I said that, and the ark remained there until 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. And that is historically possible. In fact, many of the most popular writings on this chapter say that. But then I got a chance to spend more time in the study this week. Then I got a chance to look at some of the best scholars on this chapter, and they have a little different take on what is happening here. What they are saying is that this verse is showing like a gap like a pause for 20 years. For 20 years, the ark stayed in the house of Abinadab on the hill. And it was only after 20 years that the people began lamenting, began crying after the ark. So maybe you can think of it this way. For 20 years, the people were so frustrated that they essentially forgot about God. They walked away from god and only after 20 years did they begin lamenting for their sins now this is interesting what happened during these 20 years what about uh, samuel what was he doing here's my guess my guess is that samuel was consistently preaching repentance consistently calling them to return, but nobody was listening to him at all. We know that the end of chapter three, it says that Samuel had been recognized as a prophet of God, but how often were people listening to Samuel at this point? When it came time to have that battle with the Philistines and they decided to bring the ark into the battle to use it like a lucky rabbit's foot, did anybody consult Samuel? Nope. When the ark came back, and did you hear about anybody consulting Samuel, or what should we do with this? Nope. They pretty much seem to have left Samuel alone. I believe that for 20 years, Samuel continued to repeat, to preach to the people, urging them to repent, but it was falling on completely deaf ears. It was only after 20 years that the people finally began to lament, finally began to see their sin and to desire to repent of their sin and turn to the Lord. By the way, here's an application point I put in your outlines for you. I want you to write down, you know, even when there is faithful preaching of God's word, sometimes there is little response to God's word because people refuse to listen. This week I was thinking. Imagine what it would be like to have Samuel as your pastor. A guy who is a recognized prophet of God, God speaks directly to him and he speaks God's words. I mean, if I was in the audience, I'd be taking notes really well. I mean, this is like a privilege to have this guy, but no one's listening to him. Everyone's ignoring him. No one's consulting him. And then I thought of it, this is an application point. You know, don't give up preaching the gospel. Sometimes repentance only comes after a long time. Isn't that what's happening here? Some of you have children who have walked away from the Lord. And it gets tiring to keep telling them Jesus loves you. To keep urging them to repent and to turn to Jesus. Don't give up. Keep doing that. For Samuel, it was 20 years of urging the people to repent, and he had almost no response. If you're in that situation where you have loved ones that you are urging to repent, that's the same gig Samuel was in. I mean, don't grow weary because at the end of 20 years, they did begin to lament, they did begin to repent. Now, what happens now is Samuel explains what their repentance will involve or what repentance will look like for them. And I call this, in your outline, the gospel according to Samuel. It says this, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. There's four points I want to give you to explain out of that verse what is the gospel according to Samuel. What does this repentance involve? Number one, he said, you need to return to the Lord with all of your heart. Let me get that out of verse three where it says this, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Notice it's an if. When there is weeping and there was crying over their sin, Samuel did not necessarily assume that meant that people were truly repenting of their sin. You know that, folks, that some people can weep over their sin. They don't like the consequences of their sin. They don't like the suffering of their sin but that has not made them yet want to repent of their sin. They still love the sin more than they do the Savior. They just don't like the consequences of what they're suffering. It reminds me of a a time I did some counseling with a couple, a number of years ago, so I can use the illustration. But the guy had a drinking problem. Every time he'd come home at night, he'd drink, and he'd drink to the point where he doesn't remember the things that he was doing. And he and the woman he was with came into my office, and she was just tra- traumatized. She said, he's starting to hit me. He's starting to get abusive towards me. And he said, I don't remember a thing of it. I remember telling him, you need to repent. You need to repent on the spot. You need to get rid of the bottle now. This isn't a joke. You need to, to run from your sin and you'd need to run to Jesus Christ and challenged him to trust in Jesus. And he was very broken, weeping, but it didn't go anywhere. At the end of the day, he chose the bottle and he lost the woman in his life because she left for her own safety, which is understandable. And I think that's appropriate in that case. And they never ended up getting back together. So he was sorry for the consequences of his sin, but he wasn't sorry enough to actually be repenting of his sin and turning from his sin and turning to Jesus. The Bible talks about this, by the way, this very situation. It says there's a difference between worldly grief and godly grief worldly grief means I don't like the consequences of my sin. I don't like the suffering of my sin. I don't like what's happened to me because of my sin, but I'm planning to continue in my sin. Where godly grief is when I suffer, it breaks me and I run to Jesus. I suffer and I'm really more concerned about not the consequences I'm enduring, but what I've done with my sin to Jesus and my relationship with him. The Bible talks about this uh, in, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And here's your application point. Don't confuse worldly grief with godly grief, because there is a difference. And that is what Samuel is trying to illustrate to the people. They're lamenting, they're crying, they're weeping. He says, well, if you are truly repenting, may not necessarily be so. Step two, they were to do this, put away foreign gods. And then he says, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. The implication of put away these gods. It's sort of like these gods have been around for a while. And here we see where it is the core problem that God's people are experiencing. They had adopted the Canaanite lifestyle. They had adopted the Canaanite ways. They were worshiping the Canaanite gods around them. That is what their core problem is. This is why things are not going well for them. By the way, this violates the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. They have plenty of other gods before them because they're following the Canaanite gods around them. Commandment number two, you shall not make an idol. They have plenty of idols around them. This particular god mentioned here is Ashtaroth or um, or the plural form of Ashtareth. Sometimes you hear it called Ashtarte, Let me explain who this is. This is the wife god of Baal. Baal and Ashtoreth, sort of the whole Canaanite goddess of God and goddess of fertility. Let me just show you a little bit about her. Here's a little face shot of her. I think she's coming up. There she is. So you can see what she looks like. And so, what this is the idea. If you want good rains, you want abundant crops, you want success in life, you worshipped Ashtoreth. She was the key to success. Now, why were the Israelites worshipping this God? Here's the point. Baal and Ashtoreth worship were very popular. Everybody around the Israelites, their friends and their neighbors, worshipped this god. To turn away from Baal and Ashtoreth's worship meant you did not fit in with popular culture. They were under tremendous pressure to worship these gods, the gods of success, the guaranteed success, because everybody else was worshipping them. And as soon as your neighbors had a better harvest than you did and they worshiped those gods and you didn't, what do you think they began to think? Maybe I need to join in worshiping them. And here's what we see. The Israelites needed to break with the sinful aspects of culture around them. That's what they needed to do. By the way, this applies to us today, doesn't it? Anyone following Jesus has the exact same challenge today. We are part of culture, but we cannot follow the sinful aspects of culture around us. Not to join in just because everybody else is doing it. And I've used this illustration in the past, but when I was in college and you first got away as a freshman and you're trying to fit in with all your friends at college, you know, what my friends would do is they'd always go down to the movie theaters on Friday night and we'd watch them movies. You know, watch the latest Schwarzenegger, shoot them up, gun em up, kill them up movies. That's what we always did. And then I began waking up on Saturday mornings and the Lord was really heavy on my heart that I shouldn't be filling my brain with all kinds of killing, death, sex, gore. like, this is the wrong thing to do. And the Lord kept laying that on my heart. And I remember having to come up to my friends on Friday night and say, guys, um, I'm not going to be going to the movies tonight. Well, why not? Everybody else is. I, I, just, I just can't go there, guys. I'm going to have to be home by myself in the dorm tonight because everybody else is going, but I'm not going to go. How to break with the culture. Now, I've made a lot of mistakes, but that was at least one thing I got eventually got right. But it's the same thing for us today. Maybe the way that we have to break with the culture has to do with the things we look at on the Internet that all of our friends are looking at, but as Christians, we're going to be different because it's a sinful thing. The videos you look at on YouTube, your friends may look at those things, but we don't look at those things because Those are sinful things. We are part of the culture. We're in the culture. But we're not going to endorse and follow sin with the culture. We need to be different. The scripture says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Application point right here, turn away from what is popular but sinful in the world around us. This is what God's people needed to do. This is what Samuel was challenging them to do. And then it gets more interesting. Baal and Ashtaroth were sensually appealing. A moment ago, I gave you a face shot picture of Ashtaroth. And that's because I had to crop the picture. Because her idol is that of a naked woman. She's the ancient version of porn for men. And you know how you worshipped her? You went to the temple and you had sex with Ashtoreth prostitutes. That is how you blessed your crops. A lot more exciting than going to a prayer meeting to bless your crops. Men want to go to, uh, you know, the Canaanite prostitute to bless their crops. That is how they worshipped her. Now, Here's what God is saying, and here's what God is saying through Samuel. God's men are different men. God's men don't follow the centralized, sexualized culture around them. God's men are pure men who save themselves for their wife and her exclusively and alone. So when Samuel says, put away the Ashtoreth idol, He's saying, get, away this. get rid of the sex, get rid of the porn, focus on your family and your wife. Very contemporary, very applicable. That's why he says, put away this idol. The scripture says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Application point, turn away from sexual sin. So the first thing is, turn to God, and then get rid of those areas of sin in your life. Cut them out, like the idol, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, he says. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Repentance, by the way, understand, is not just turning from sin. It is turning to God. I like to think of it this way. Repentance is like flipping a coin. When at the same point you turn from sin, you have to turn to God. Otherwise, you just turn from one sin, then turn to the next sin. So you go from one sin to the next sin, unless that turning is to God himself. And what is the result, he says, if you do this? God will deliver you. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Here we see. That for the last 20 years, the Philistines have been a constant nuisance to them. Not just that the Philistines beat them 20 years ago, but the Philistines have continued to beat them down for the last 20 years. And what Samuel is doing is he's having sort of a promise keepers conference. (laughs) Guys, let's get together and let's repent of this sin. Let's lament of this sin. Because this is what happens so the people of Israel put away the bales and the asterisketh and they served the lord only short verse but hugely significant verse for twenty years they had not put away the bales and the asterisks and they had not served the Lord only for twenty years Samuel had continually preached repentance. He had urged the people to repent. For most of those 20 years, that constant message has fallen on deaf ears. But here, at the, beginning, at the end of the 20 years, people are beginning to lament. They're crying over sin. Now people are putting away their sin. They're turning to God for forgiveness of their sin. What's happening is a national revival is breaking out, folks. That's what's happening. And it says this, Samuel gathered the people and prayed for the people. Then Samuel said, gather all the people at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. By the way, Mizpah is a traditional gathering place for the people of Israel. It's only five miles north of Jerusalem. And what's going is these people are turning to the Lord. Samuel wants to be a good pastor. You know, Can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Can I pray over you? And then it says, So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. Pouring out water and fasting, these are all expressions of genuine, heartfelt repentance and contrition. These are not symbolic. These are genuine. Pouring out water is that day when they were thirsty, they filled their canteen, but rather than be refreshed by the water, they poured it on the ground and said, God, we need you more than we need this water. We're more desperate for your forgiveness right now than I am with the thirst for this water. The same thing with food. We're hungry right now, but I need you and I need your forgiveness more than I need this food today. So I'm denying myself this food as I'm seeking you with all of my heart, asking for your forgiveness, asking for your restoration. That's what he's doing. they're doing. And then it says this, And Samuel judged Israel. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now we read judge, and all of a sudden we think Judge Judy. So all of a sudden Samuel did small claims court? No, that's not what's happening. This word judged... What it means is Samuel continued to preach. Samuel continued to show people their sin. Samuel continued to urge people to repent of their sin. That is what is going on here. He's talking about personal sin and corporate sin. Because Samuel knows what the people need more than anything is to repent. Repent from the bottom of their heart. You know, it struck me. Sometimes the best thing a preacher can do for people is to help them see their sin and repent of their sin. Isn't it true? You know, they say soft preaching creates hard people. Hard preaching can create soft people. In other words, sometimes you have to preach the truth and identify sin and call people to repent of their sin, just like Samuel did. And then all of a sudden, things get interesting. Now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistine went up against Israel. The Philistines, they're the bullies around the block. They're the guys who have had Israel under their finger for the last 20 years. Oh, Israel has gathered at Mizpah. They're all there. This is a great opportunity. Let's go jump on them, kill a bunch of them, and steal all their stuff. Bunch of bullies. And the people of, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Well, that's reasonable. Last time they had a big national battle against the Philistines, they lost terribly. Thirty-four thousand men died. We're going to see later that they don't have the Israelites don't have any iron implements. They don't have anything but sticks, because the Philistines were the only ones who were allowed to have blacksmiths. So the Israelites are majorly underarmed. They do not have the weapons. This is going to be an easy Philistine slaughter. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Twenty years before, There was no prayer before that battle the israelites tried to use the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot a military super weapon and everything backfired but here things are very different people have been aware of their sin they've been fasting they've been weeping they've put away their idols they've turned their heart to god they're asking god to save them now here's the question Does all this repentance make a difference? What do you think? Yes. The last thing Samuel does is he offers a one-week-old lamb as a whole burnt offering. In other words, the blood of that animal to cover the sins of the people. Now, think about this. The Philistines are on their way. The Philistines are coming. What is Samuel doing? Is he telling everyone to go home and get whatever swords and what instruments they have and prepare for the battle? No. Philistine, or Samuel, is focusing on repentance, deep repentance, full repentance, and offering the sacrifice to cover their sins. Samuel knows The most important thing for that battle is that God's people are repentant and in a right relationship with him. The outcome of that battle will depend upon their repentance. And this applies to us as well. I have this as an application point. The most important way to prepare for the battles of life is to be in a right relationship with God. That is what Samuel is doing and this is what happens. It says, the Lord answered Samuel. This is the first time in the book of Samuel, since God answered Hannah's prayer in the very opening part of the book, this is the first time God has responded favorably towards his people. God has stepped to the plate, and here is what happens. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. These are happening right at the same time. Final offering, Philistines are coming. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. God unleashes what says thunder against the Philistines. Not just ordinary thunder. It says a mighty mighty thunder like crazy extreme thunder was lightning involved doesn't say that but it might as well have been like thunder and lightning on the philistines like the god of heaven and i began imagining what was this like now i know maybe some of you guys are going to get angry at me for using the illustration but it's like the god thor shows up in a marvel comic movie you know maybe a lot worse than that obviously But God is using his thunder and lightning to throw these guys into complete confusion. The Philistines are running for their life and all of a sudden they're battling more than just the Israelites. They're battling God himself. And I kept thinking, let me just pause for a moment and step out of this. Remember that in the beginning I told you in Hannah's prayer, there's all these lines in Hannah's prayer that will weave out as their themes that are woven through this book in chapter 2. There's a line in Hannah's prayer that directly addresses this. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 10, "The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces; against them he will thunder in 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 heaven." Isn't that exactly what happened? God used his thunder to literally break the adversaries of the Lord to pieces. Now, I don't know if you realize this. This is where it's sort of a mirror image. 20 years before, at Ebenezer, God's people had gone into battle unrepentant, trusting the ark to save them. This time, God's people went into battle completely repentant, trusting God to save them. In that first battle of Ebenezer, God fought against his people. But when God's people repented, God fought for his people and defeated the Philistines. Does repentance make a difference? Repentance in a life makes all of the difference. This is why churches and pastors who refuse to call God's people to repentance who refuse to identify sin like Samuel did for 20 years are doing a terrible thing to God's people, doing a terrible thing to the church because the only way that God's people can be forgiven is if they identify their sin, they call out to God for forgiveness of their sin, they turn away from that sin, the idols in their life, and then God fights for them, not against them. That's the way God works. This is why repentance is so important. And it says this, And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Now that doesn't mean much unless I'll give you a little bit of a map. There they are. Mizpah, beth Car. Okay, how far are they apart? They're about six miles apart. So the Israelites pursued them for about six miles. It says below beth Car. Maybe this was an additional seven or a total eight miles. And then we see this. Don't forget when God has rescued us. And, when, and then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. If you had not made the connection between the first battle of Ebenezer, where God's people lost miserably, which was actually in the north, And this second battle, Samuel wants to make it abundantly clear by setting up a rock that he calls Ebenezer. The first Ebenezer was a terrible memory in people's mind. The second Ebenezer is a good memory in people's mind. And he wants them to remember that repentance in their life made all the difference. And he said, you know, Ebenezer literally means, and God will help us, or God has helped us. But he says it means, till now God has helped us. In other words, yeah, God helped us this time, but five years in the future, ten years in the future, will you go back to following the ways of the world? Will you have gone back to following the sinful ways which breaks and frustrates your relationship with God? He says, every time you see this stone, remember, repentance makes all the difference. Don't walk away from the Lord. Here's an application for you. We're not a people who live out. Of, in, we're not a people who live in the past, but we live out of the past. That's an important one for me. We're not a church that's trying to live like it's 1950, folks. We're living in modern culture. Well, we are going to learn lessons of the past. When God shows up in mighty ways, when his people repent, we're going to learn from that, and we're going to follow that. Number seven, God protected his people after repentance. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines and there was peace also between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Simple message, I'll run quickly on this one. That was just a one one day defeat, but this repentance of God's people really completely subdued the Philistines for a long period of time and the Ammonites who were the native Canaanites in the land. Number eight, God sustains his people with repentance. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year from Bethel to Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. For the rest of Samuel's life, he went on a preaching circuit tour continuing to judge Israel, which you know what that means as we talked earlier, preaching repentance to the people, calling them to put away their idols and return to God because he knew that repentance is what made all the difference. Let's pray. Father, we know that turning from sin and turning to you It's not just a huge thing in the Old Testament for God's people Israel, but that is the way that we are born again now. And being born again is not just a a one-time thing, but continually through our life. As we see sin creep into our life, we are called to repent and flee to Jesus. May we be people who continually introspect and look at our lives for how we have become sinful and walked away from you. May we repent and run to you, Jesus, knowing your forgiveness is always fresh, your love is always new. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.